Once again, we turn our attention to Paul's letter to the church at Rome, and we are still in the eighth chapter, but God willing and the creek don't rise, we'll try to finish that eighth chapter this evening. So tonight I'll pick it up at verse uh, 31, repeating where we left off last week and reading through verse 39, which is the end of chapter 8. So I'd ask the congregation to stand for the hearing of the Word of God. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how shall He not with Him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is He who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities nor powers, nor things present nor things to come, nor height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Thanks be to God for these words of great comfort for our souls. Please be seated. Let us pray. O Lord, as the deer pants with a mountain spring, so pants our souls after Thee. And we rejoice in every word that proceeds from Your mouth, but particularly these strong words of comfort and assurance that You have given to us here in Your Word. Help us, O Lord, to take this Word to our hearts, that we may embrace this Word with all of our might, so that whatever befalls us, we know wherein we stand with You. For we pray this in the name of Jesus, amen. Last week, after considering the golden chain, I talked about the rhetorical question that Paul 
raises here in chapter 8 when he asks the question, what then shall we say about these things? And so often what is said about those things when they involve the doctrine of predestination and God's sovereign electing grace is unending protests against God's sovereignty. But that's not where Paul's thinking goes. Rather, when he considers the implications of this work of grace that begins in eternity and is concluded with our glorification by which we will be in God's presence for the rest of eternity. And one of the things I might mention as an aside is that I love when we sing Amazing Grace, when we get to that last verse where it says that that we've been there for 10,000 years and so on, we say we have no less days to sing His praise than when we first begun. We think of Paul and the apostles who went to be with the Lord 2,000 years ago, and yet they still have eternity to enjoy the blessedness of their salvation. And we will also enjoy that same endless period of time with Him. And so, having taught these things in Romans, Paul says what we should say to these things is that confession that I mentioned last week, the confession Deus pro nobis, God for us. If God is for us, who can be against us? Well, notice that that phrase is set forth in a conditional sense where the language suggests a kind of uncertainty because the apostle says, if God is for us, as if that were a matter open to some doubt or further speculation. But rather, Paul is not trying to indicate that there's any uncertainty about God's being for us because he simply labored throughout these chapters to demonstrate how deeply is God for his elect. But rather, he's speaking now in terms of the language of logic, the language even of the syllogism that gives the first premise followed by the second premise rushing towards a conclusion, and the conclusion of a syllogism is one that follows inexorably and irrefutably from the premises if the premises are sound. If A is true, we say, and if B is true, then C must of necessity follow. And so when Paul speaks here of if God is for us, he is speaking syllogistically, not with respect to uncertainty, but we could say it in another way, and even the language allows it, since God is for us, who can be against us? Well, 
Obviously, if God is for us, the whole world can be against us because man in his revolt against God not only protests against his Creator, but all of the redeemed. But what is implicit in this statement by the apostle is that if God is for us, not just who can be against us, but the idea is who could possibly stand against us. And this is, of course, a rhetorical question where the answer is obvious, that no one can stand against us if God is standing with us. The old aphorism, which has since become something of a cliche, goes like this, that one person with God on his side is in a majority against all the rest of the human race. Now, he goes on to expound upon this idea where he says, He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how shall He not with Him also freely give us all things? Now, first of all, we notice that the language that the apostle uses is the language of sparing. If somebody is rescued from an almost certain doom at the last second, we say that they've been spared the disaster that was about to befall them. When we read this language in Romans 8, how can we not think back to Genesis chapter 22 when God commanded Abraham to offer his son, his only son, the son whom he loved, Isaac, on the altar at Mount Moriah. And we remember the drama of that event where Abraham and his obedience took his son on that arduous journey and placed him on the altar, bound in ropes, lifted up the knife, about to slay him, and at the last possible second, God stopped it. He said, Abraham, Abraham, lay not your hand upon your son. In that moment, God commanded Abraham to spare his son. And we know in terms of ancient geography that the situation of Mount Moriah is what, is what was later called Mount Calvary, just outside the city of Jerusalem, where thousands of years after Abraham's experience, the night before his death, our Savior went into the Garden of Gethsemane, sweat drops of blood, pleading with the Father to allow the cup that the Father had set before the Son to pass from Him. Nevertheless, Jesus said, not my will, but yours be done. And ladies and gentlemen, in that moment of the grand passion of Christ, the Father said no. The Father would not spare His Son. And Paul is saying, 
how can we understand the posture of God towards His people when He goes to such lengths and such extremes to affect our redemption that He doesn't, He spares nothing, not even His own Son, that we might be saved. And so He says, He didn't spare His own Son, but He delivered Him up for us all. Or let me put it another way, for all of us. I don't believe for a moment that it was for all mankind. But God gave His Son to redeem His elect. And Paul says He gave His Son for us, mainly that meaning for believers, for those who are a part of that golden chain that we have just studied in weeks past. But God didn't spare anything, but rather delivered Christ up for us all. Then another rhetorical question, how shall He not with Him then also freely give us all things? He has spared nothing to affect our redemption. And in His refusal to spare anything, doesn't hold anything back to affect our salvation. At the same time, because of Christ's perfect obedience, the Father bestows every conceivable blessing upon His Son who has affected our salvation. His inheritance is the world and everything in it. And now Paul says that because the Son has died for us, and the Father has not spared Him, will He not also give us everything that He gives His Son? Going, continuing on this theme of adoption that He developed earlier on in this chapter, speaking about our being in that position where we are heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ, because the Father is pleased to give all things to His Son, whom He did not spare. And not only to His Son, but all to whom He has given to His Son for His Son's glory. Then He goes on with this list of questions. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. What a powerful, powerful statement. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Obviously, the work of Satan is to bring every conceivable slanderous charge against God's elect. Satan never ceases accusing the brethren. He never stops harassing us and getting at our consciences and tell us how wicked we are how undeserving we are to be in fellowship with Christ. I've said many times that the principal work of Satan in the life of the believer is not temptation, though he is engaged in that, but his chief work in the life of the believer is the work of accusation, to take away your assurance, 
to take away your joy, to take away the consolation that is yours in Christ. He keeps reminding you of your sin. He keeps telling you of your shortcomings. He keeps wagging His finger at you saying, shame on you for this and for that. He lays every conceivable charge that He can bring against God's elect, and yet there is no work that Satan has ever been engaged in, dear friends, that is more futile than his work of bringing charges against you. And Paul mocks Satan with this question, who shall lay any charge against God's elect? What could be more silly than to bring accusations against those who have been redeemed through the blood of the Lamb? Don't you remember who is it? who it is who justifies? It's the judge of all the earth who declares us just by the imputation of the righteousness of Christ. Which righteousness is perfect? Let's back up a second. Who can rightly bring any charge against Jesus? He said to his contemporaries, Who shall among you can accuse me of sin? He sinless. So any attempt to charge Jesus with sin is an exercise in futility. It's a waste of time and breath because the Father knows that Christ is without sin. And His perfect obedience is then imputed or transferred to the account of everyone who puts their faith in the Son. And so, it was just as futile for anybody to lay a charge against us as it is to lay a charge against Christ because we're clothed in His righteousness. We are justified by His merit, by His righteousness, and in Jesus Christ, God hasn't pardoned us, nor has He exonerated us, but having clothed us with the righteousness of Christ, the judge of all of the earth has pronounced His verdict of righteousness just to everyone who is in Jesus Christ. So once the supreme sovereign judge declares you righteous in His sight, all the slander in the world, beloved, will make no impact, no dent upon God's assured final judgment of you. That's why there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because the judge has declared us just. Do you see, beloved, why justification is not just an abstract doctrine? Why we never must ever negotiate this doctrine because it is the very heart and soul of the gospel, because of our justification in Jesus Christ, I fear no slander 
from Satan or from the whole world. We remember the tombstone of St. Athanasius where he was driven into exile so many times it's hard to count them. On this tombstone simply says, Athanasius, contra mundum. But if you turn the tombstone around, it should say, Deus pro nobis. God was for you, Athanasius, though the whole world was against you. This is Paul's weighing of sticks and saying sticks and stones will break my bones and names will never hurt you. My mother used to teach me that. Sticks and stones will break. She tell me, when somebody says something nasty to you, just say sticks and stones break my bones. Names will never hurt me. You ever try that? The first time I tried it, I said sticks and stones will break my bones. Names will never hurt me, but they hurt. <laughs> and a lot of times those Slanderous accusations are more painful than sticks and stones. But they bounce off the skin of the Christian in the presence of God because God has declared us righteous in His sight. The verdict's in. There's no higher court of appeal than the verdict rendered by the sovereign judge of all of the earth. Paul goes on. It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? Once God has justified you, who can condemn you? Condemnation is gone. It's evaporated. It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Do you hear, hear the Apostles' Creed in miniature here in that one sentence? Remember, it's Christ who died. It's Christ who was raised for your justification. It's Christ who ascended to the right hand of God where He was seated in the position of power, of cosmic authority, is the King of the kings and Lord of lords, the one who is the highest tribunal in the cosmos right now is the one who died for you. You remember when Stephen was stoned? The fury of his enemies as they set themselves against him, gnashing their teeth in their hatred. And they started throwing the rocks that were opening the gashes and cuts on this saint. And while his blood was pouring from his veins and his life was draining from him, he looked up and God gave him the vision into heaven. And when he looked up, he saw the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. The earthly court had condemned him to death. And at that very moment, the heavenly court was in session, and the judge of all of the earth was the defense counsel for Stephen. That's where the court sits that matters, at the right hand of God. And not only 
is our Savior who's been raised from the dead, our judge and our defense attorney, but He is our intercessor. He is our great high priest who's pleading our case before God every minute. Do you see how foolish it is then to worry about the slanders of men in this world? Who shall lay any charge to God's elect? It's God who justifies. It's Christ who died. It's Christ who was raised for our justification. It's Christ who's sitting at the right hand of the Father, and it's Christ who intercedes for us every day. Beloved, it just does not get any better. It couldn't possibly get any better than that. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Those who who live a life of uncertainty, thinking that once you're saved, you can lose your salvation. Tomorrow you might commit a mortal sin and have to go through the second blank of justification for having destroyed the grace in your soul. Or those who worry about failing to persevere until the end, and so they live always in uncertainty. We've seen that the, the finest go, uh, flower in God's garden is the tulip, and I've explained that to you. The worst flower in God's garden is the daisy, where Christians who are uncertain stand there and pluck the petals off the daisy, saying, He loves me, He loves me not, He loves me, He loves me not. There's none of that. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Then Paul explores the options of those potential things that could drive a wedge between our Savior and ourselves. Shall tribulation or distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or sword, are not all of these things those very experiences in which Jesus steps to the front and assures us of His presence with us? If anything seals His love for us, it is His promise to be with us in the midst of persecution and peril and sword and famine and everything that the world, the flesh, and the devil can throw against us. Remember that these things that Paul is anticipating here are not exhaustive. This list is representative. He could say, who shall separate us from the love of God or the love of Christ? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, perils, the sword, the press, the police, the devil. He could go on forever about those things that would try to separate us from the love of Christ. But he's saying, no, it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We're counted as sheep for the slaughter. How often is the image of the sheep used 
in the Bible to refer to the flock of God and to Christ who is our good shepherd. Does not the Bible describe Jesus when He was in His trial before Pilate that as the sheep before His shears is dumb, so He opened not His mouth? Our Lord, who is the great shepherd, became the sheep, the docile one who went willingly to the slaughter. And we participate in that vocation by participating in His humiliation and His tribulation and in His death. In the 19th century, one of the most cynical attacks against Christianity that was ever written came from the pen of Friedrich Nietzsche, in which he declared the death of God. And you know what uh, malady it was that killed the deity. Nietzsche said, God is dead. He died of pity. What was he getting at there? Nietzsche was convinced that Western civilization, particularly Western Europe, had become completely decadent by his time in the 19th century, principally as the result of the baleful influence of Christianity. He couldn't stand that Christianity exalted virtues like mercy and love and pity, which virtues, according to Christianity, stripped human beings of their natural humanity. Because Nietzsche argued that the thing that most defined humanness was not that we were homo sapiens, that we had the ability to reflect, to be engaged in cogitation and, and wisdom, but really what defines human beings and separates them from the beast is our will to power that every human being has this drive to dominate, to conquer, to rise to the top, to be king of the hill. But Christianity, with its false piety, takes away the strength of humanity and has left us with a race of impotent men. And so Nietzsche called for a new humanity, the dawn of the new man, who would be Superman, the Ubermensch, who would be the example of authentic human existence, who would be the father of biological heroism. Is it any wonder that Hitler sent copies of also Sprach Zarathustra to his henchmen as Christmas presents when he was trying to develop the super race of Aryans in the 20th century. But the chief characteristic of Superman, according to Nietzsche, was that Superman is a conqueror. He's the man, Nietzsche said, who sails his ship into uncharted waters, the Hemingway of his day, who grabs the bull by the horns, who builds his house 
on the slopes of Vesuvius. He will bow to no opposition, show fear to no uh, power of nature such as a volcano. He is defiant to the end. He is Uberman, the Superman. In contradistinction to the weak, pitiable Christian who turns the other cheek. I always think of Nietzsche when I read this portion of the text where he says, yet in all of these things, pestilence, tribulation, peril, sword, being led as sheep to the slaughter, in all these things we are more than conquerors. The Greek there comes from the term Hooper Nikon. We're hyper conquerors. The Latin's even better. It's super vintemus. In all of these things, the Word of God tells us we are supermen. Through Him who loved us. You want a superman, an ubermensch? We have it in Christ, who has conquered the world. Nietzsche believed in dialectical courage, which would mark the superman. Dialectical courage is courage that is irrational. Remember, Nietzsche declared that life is meaningless, and there are no real values. And so he preached to his contemporaries, saying, Life is meaningless. Be of good cheer. Be courageous anyway. You have no reason to be courageous. Your courage will leave you at the bottom of the sea, but be courageous anyway. How different that is from Jesus' charge to His people. Be of good cheer. Why? Because I have overcome the world. There's a reason for our cheer. There is a reason for our joy. Because the Lord Jesus Christ has conquered powers, principalities, every wickedness in the cosmos. For I am persuaded, the apostle says, neither death nor life, principalities nor powers, things present nor things to come, nor height nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You may feel at times that God has departed from you, but that's when you have to believe His Word rather than your feelings. 
because the Word of God promises and guarantees that death can't do it. Life can't do it. Earthly governments can't do it. They could throw Joseph in prison for years, but they couldn't separate Joseph from the love of his God. Principalities in the demonic demonic world, Satan and his angels, they can't do it. What else? Nothing in the present, nothing tomorrow can happen that will separate us from the love of Christ. What about height? What about depth? You see, again, Paul is being just giving us a selective number of examples of things that we might think could separate us from the love of Christ, but he's saying not height, not depth, not life, not death, not powers, not principalities, not anything from any creature can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Do you remember the theme of this chapter that I mentioned when we first began to study chapter 8? The question was, is it safe? If we've been saved, are we safe? Safe from what? Safe from anything that this world can put against us. Because God from all eternity has loved us and has redeemed us. We are His elect. To be elected of God is to be chosen by God. To be chosen of God is to be chosen for a purpose, to be conformed to the image of Christ and to be Christ's possession, not for a day, not for a week, but for eternity. You don't like the idea of God's sovereign grace? Do you still kick against it? When that is our guarantee, that nothing can separate us from the great love wherewith He loved us. Let's pray. Father, we can't begin to fathom the depths and the riches of this love, Your love that perseveres. And it's only because of Your persevering love that we have any hope of persevering because you are committed to preserving your people whom you have given to Christ, that you may give to Him and to His all things. O Lord, make our hearts sing in gratitude tonight and forevermore. Amen.